Good morning. Would you please turn uh, with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. We have one more morning together in Hebrews, and what a joy it is uh, to be here. Hebrews uh, chapter 13, if you would join me in prayer one more time. Heavenly Father, our gracious God, we come to you hungry, needy, weak, and weary. And we pray, Lord, that you would meet with us through the preaching of your word, that we would hear your voice, that we would behold your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and reigning. Give us eyes to see him this morning by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is our last sermon in the book of Hebrews. And as we come to the end of these 20 months where we've looked together through Hebrews, I want to share with you uh, one of the greatest passions and desires of my life. Uh, this is an all-consuming passion that uh, grips my heart and keeps me in prayer before God Almighty. And that passion, dearly beloved brothers and sisters, is your holiness. I love you, and I deeply, deeply desire your growth in holiness that you would be increasingly Christ-like in your lives, that we as a church would increasingly reflect the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the reason I'm here. It's, it's why I pastor and seek to preach God's word, is that you would be conformed to the image of Christ. And here's one of the beauties and ironies of pastoral ministry is that that is an all-consuming desire for me, but I have absolutely no power to accomplish that. And you don't have the ability to accomplish it either. In fact, that's one of the reasons why we end our worship gatherings the way that we do every week. You know, maybe you've wondered about that, and it's always good to be thoughtful about what we do in worship. Uh, why do we do what we do? Not just go through the motions. We end our worship gatherings at ECC with this ancient practice uh, that churches have practiced for 2,000 years called a benediction. Benediction comes uh, from a Latin phrase which means good word. And, and you'll see that after the sermon is finished, at the end of the worship service, the pastor lifts his hands pronounces a word from Scripture, and then out we go into the world. Maybe you've wondered what's happening. And I want you to know, it's not just like the end credits in a movie, like, you know, the main action is finished, and now this is some optional tag-on, I can leave, or I don't need to be there. No, it's very, very significant. What's happening in a benediction, it's kind of the exclamation point on the service. God has spoken to us through His Word, and that same God now blesses you to go out into the world and to live according to that word. 
So we don't end the service pleading with you. No, we end the service pleading with God for you and pronouncing his word of blessing upon you. Because you see, ultimately, only God has the power to accomplish in you what he commands. And as one pastor puts it, and I'll paraphrase, he says, benedictions carry more weight than just a prayer. It's not just a prayer to end the service. No, in the benediction, a minister standing as an authorized representative for Christ with authority to speak for God and from God conveys God's blessing to you by speaking the promises of God's word upon you. And if you look in the New Testament at the various benedictions that are there, if you even pay attention to the benediction each week as we end the service, you will notice that uh, they all have a very similar structure. Uh, Benedictions articulate blessings that God's people receive, and they're closely connected to truths about who God is. So you see this connection between who God is and what He's done, and His promise to bless his people. That's a great way to pray, by the way, when we seek God's help in various areas of our lives, uh, that we call upon him based on who he has revealed himself to be in his word. And so here today, we're coming to the end of Hebrews, and it ends with a benediction and with greetings. Uh, You might remember the context of Hebrews. This was originally a sermon that was preached by a concerned pastor to a congregation of weary believers in Christ who were struggling in their faith. He has come to the end of the sermon, and now he is pronouncing his benediction. And you'll notice as we look at the text uh, that in the structure of this benediction, it's very clear, you'll see that the text tells us something about God and what he's done in Christ, and that is connected to what the text promises for us. Do you follow? There's a clear connection between who God is and who Christ is, and what God promises for us. So with that, let me read Hebrews 13, verses 20 and following. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. So as we look at this text, brothers and sisters, My hope is that you would grow this morning in confident assurance, in the confident assurance of God's work in you based on who He is and what He's done in Christ. And as we go through the passage here, you'll see two promises of blessing for us, which are based on two truths about God and two truths about Christ. And then in closing, two ways that God equips us to live out His Word. And I'm going to go backwards in the text, starting in verse 21, 
with what the text promises for us. So you'll see first two promises of blessing for us there in verse 21. And we look at both of these together. God equips us, notice the text, may He equip you with everything good that you may do His will. And He works in us that which is pleasing in His sight. Look at that. Working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So the two promises of blessing are that God will equip us with everything good to do His will. And second, that God will work in us that which is pleasing in His sight. In other words, God Almighty equips us, believers in Christ, with everything that we need to live the life that He calls us to live. He graciously equips us and works in us and enables us to do His will and to live for Him. God has not left us to live the Christian life by ourselves. He doesn't save us and then say, say, now figure it out. No, brother and sister, if you are a believer in Christ, God equips you and works in you that you might do His will and live a life pleasing to Him. I love how uh, Augustine in the early church prayed in his uh, book called Confessions. He says to the Lord, O Lord, command what you will and give what you command. In other words, the only way Augustine knew, and we know that we can fulfill God's commands, is if He works in us and enables us to fulfill those commands. The Christian life is hard. The fight for holiness is fierce. There are many temptations to give up along the way. But God doesn't call us to do it in our own strength. And, and here we're really getting into the doctrine of what is called the doctrine of sanctification. Uh, we think of justification, how the Lord pardons us from sin and declares us righteous in His sight by faith, by trust in the finished work of Christ. Here we're thinking about sanctification, which on the one hand is kind of immediate. God moves us from the realm of the unholy into the realm of the holy. We are positionally counted holy before Him. But sanctification is also progressive. See, sanctification refers to how God in His grace works in us for us to grow in holiness and live the Christian life. It's how we live in obedience. And sanctification involves both God's work and our work. This is important because uh, very often uh, Christians, especially evangelicals, get confused and have some mistaken thoughts about sanctification, how we grow in holiness and obedience. So I can give you two incorrect models of sanctification and then what the biblical model is more like. One stream of thought, and many Christians often think this way, and maybe this is some of you and your background and you've experienced this, we think of uh, growing in obedience and holiness, our sanctification and walk in the Christian life, we think of it kind of like Nike, right? just do it. You, you need to go get from point A to point B, right? This is the Christian life is a journey. You got saved. You begin at point A. You need to make the journey all the way to the end to point B. And you envision the Christian life kind of like this. Okay, you're starting the journey. God gives you a worn-out old bicycle and says, do it. Just do it. Pedal harder. Pedal faster. 
You're tired. No, keep going. So Christianity is kind of envisioned as this list of do's and don'ts. Do these things. Don't do those things. Friends, that is not the biblical model. That's not how it works. Notice what the text says. The text says that He equips us with everything good that we may do His will. He works in us that which is pleasing in His sight. So that's incorrect. Uh, Here's another model uh, of the way that people think about it. Uh, This is the Abu Dhabi taxi model of sanctification. So you have to get from point A to point B. And uh, here's what happens. There's a taxi. God is driving the taxi. You just hop in the back and sit down passively on your mobile phone. And boom, you arrive at your destination. This is another incorrect way of thinking about our growth in holiness and obedience. Uh, Sometimes you hear this with this very common phrase that people use, which is actually an unbiblical phrase, uh, which is let go and let God. If I want to overcome this, I just need to let go. I don't do anything. I'm passive and let God. God does it all. God is going to zap me. God is going to somehow do it instantaneously and make me okay. Well, that's also not biblical. In fact, you see it right here in this verse. Notice, God equips us, verse 21, with everything good that you may do His will. We still work. Uh, Think of Ephesians chapter 2, which talks about us being saved by grace through faith. We are God's workmanship, God working in us, Ephesians 2.10. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God prepared for us that we might walk in them. So we have a part to play. By faith, we trust in God's promises and we take steps forward in obedience to God. So the Christian life is neither like just do it, Nike, pedaling on a bicycle, nor is it like a passive taxi ride where you're sitting in the back seat, not doing anything at all. No, it's more like these advanced new Teslas with the driver assistance system, right? Autopilot. And the question is, are you driving it or is it driving you? And the answer is, yes. It's both. God works in us. He, he gives us this amazing new creation, new heart, supernatural engine that desires to obey Him, that desires to live for Him. He continually works in us to keep trusting in His promises by faith. And then we, by faith in who He is and what He's done, keep taking one step forward, sometimes two steps back, but keep moving forward in the Christian life. That's how it works. And that's why the author, this pastor here at Hebrews, ends his sermon by pronouncing this blessing on his congregation that is my prayer for you as well, that God would equip you with everything good, that he would work in us that which is pleasing in his sight. And so we're equipped by him, we're enabled by him to glorify him, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as he works within us to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's incredibly encouraging. Should be for you, dear Christian. It is for me as a pastor of the flock. Are you here this morning and you're discouraged in your Christian walk or fearful and anxious about whether you will persevere in the faith? Take heart. God will equip you with everything good and will work in you that which is pleasing in His sight. Are you here and you're desirous for greater growth, 
in your walk with Christ? Are you striving after holiness? Are things going well? In that case, dear brother or sister, I want to tell you, keep on. Keep pressing on in the knowledge that your Father is at work within you by His great power. Are you struggling? Maybe stumbling? Feel like you've been straying? Know this, God will not abandon you. And you can pray and we pray for you that He will continue to keep you on the path of holiness, that He will equip you with everything good, that He will work in you that which is pleasing in His sight. These are God's great promises to us. Remember who it is that equips us to do His will. Remember that He works in us. And that's what the author wants us to see as he pronounces this blessing. It's not just the promises of what God does and will do for us. No, the author wants us to be confident in who it is that makes these promises. Remember what I said at the beginning about the structure of benedictions. What the text promises for us is rooted in and connected to what the text tells us about God. So we've seen two promises of blessing for us. And then, friends, our confident assurance comes from two truths about God and two truths about Christ. So two truths about God. First, in verse 20, He is the God of peace. Did you see that? He is the God of peace. Now may the God of peace... That's the start of the benediction. The Lord our God is the author and source of peace. What a beautiful title for God that is. Especially when we recognize that we are all born into this world in enmity to God. We don't deserve peace. We deserve eternal punishment. We come into this world as enemies of God. And yet here he is named the God of peace, promising peace with God now and peace and rest for eternity. You see, the Bible tells us that God is holy. He is our creator. If you're here and you don't know Christ, I want you to know this. I want you to hear this. We have one true and living God. He is the creator of all things. He is holy, righteous, and just. He created us to live for Him, to enjoy peace with Him. But all of us, you see, have sinned. The human race has rebelled against God. We stand in judgment. We stand in condemnation. God stands in judgment over us because of our sin. We don't have peace with Him. We come into this world as sinners at enmity with Him. And yet God has not left us in our sin. He has not shoved us away into eternal punishment. In His mercy and grace, the God of peace sent His own Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, who died on the cross, taking upon Himself the punishment that we deserve. As Romans 5 says, while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. He rose again from the dead, and he promises peace, reconciliation with God for all who will turn from sin, 
and trust in Him. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you are still in your sins. You are still an enemy of God. But today, by turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus, you can have peace with God. You can be reconciled to your Creator. You can have eternal life, forgiveness of all your sins, and peace forever from the God of peace. You know, this is such a good word for all of us with our fearful, restless hearts. When you think about the uh, original audience, this congregation who first received Hebrews, they had fallen in many ways. Some of them were stumbling, struggling. They were straying. I think there was fear of whether they could come back to the Lord. The author repeatedly encourages them, draw near. Draw near and receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. Be reminded that your God is the God of peace, that the one who equips us with everything good, the one who works in us that which is pleasing in his sight is the same God who, is, who has made peace with us through the blood of Jesus Christ and with whom we have peace now and lasting peace forever. That's the first truth that we see about God here. He is the God of peace. Second, we see not only is he the God of peace, he is also the God of all power. Specifically, resurrection power. God is the God of peace. And second, God has the power to raise the dead. Look at verse 20. May the God of peace, who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus. That is the God we're calling upon to bless us. He is the God who raised Jesus from the dead. He brought him again from the dead. You know, as we've looked through Hebrews, we've seen again and again this emphasis on the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. That the one who is fully God took on flesh and blood, became fully man, so that he could be our representative, so that he could be our substitute. He offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for our sins in our place, pouring out his blood, and he died to save us from our sins. But Hebrews has kept reminding us that that's not the end of the story. No, Hebrews has kept on telling us and giving us shadows of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. You think about Hebrews chapter 5, where it says that Jesus, with loud cries and tears, prayed to the one who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his devotion. He was raised from the dead. Hebrews chapter 7 tells us that he always lives to make intercession for us as our great high priest because of his indestructible life. And here the author comes out and says it explicitly, God brought Jesus again from the dead. Just think about the power of our great God. Jesus was fully human, like you and I. He was fully God he was truly and fully man. He was nailed to a cross. He died. His blood went cold. His heart stopped beating. He ceased breathing. His human brain stopped functioning. All his organs failed and shut down. And then his battered, torn, dead body 
was laid in a tomb, cold and lifeless. A stone was rolled in front of the tomb and guards were stationed at the entrance. And by the infinite power of Almighty God, he rose again. God brought him again from the dead, out of the realm of death, glorious and risen. The the language used there is the same language that we see used of the Exodus. Just as God brought his people out of the land of Egypt, God brought Jesus out of the realm of death. That God is the one who equips you to do his will. That almighty, powerful God is the one who has saved you and is working in you even now. The God who raised Jesus from the dead. What unshakable confidence we have when we know who it is that works in us. Think again, think about the significance of the resurrection throughout Hebrews. Because God brought Jesus again from the dead, because of the resurrection of Christ, we know. What do we know? We know, first, Hebrews chapter 2, he has defeated death and he has defeated the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, to rescue us from slavery to the fear of death. Because Jesus rose again, we know his sacrifice was perfect, that his sacrifice has accomplished its intention, redemption for all who trust him. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we know that he has ascended into heaven and he always lives to make intercession for us, that Jesus is praying for us even now as our great high priest. Because Jesus rose again from the dead, we know that his resurrection is the promise of our resurrection, that one day we will rise and we will follow him into the heavenly city, into glory. He will raise you from the dead just as he he raised Jesus from the dead. God will raise you. And friends, this God who has the power of life and death, who has resurrection power, is the one who equips you to do his will, who is working in us. The same power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead is at work in you even now. His resurrection power is what equips you to do his will, is what works in you to do everything pleasing before him. Think of that power every time you're tempted to sin. When when you're facing temptation, and when it's hard, remember, you have the power to say no to sin, and yes to Christ and to holiness. The power that brought Jesus again from the dead is working in you, dear Christian, to live a life pleasing to your heavenly Father, to hang on in faith even when it's hard, to keep on till the end. But not only does this benediction point us to who God is, it also reminds us who Christ is. Because the promises of God's blessing on God's people come to us through Christ. Did you notice verse 21? May he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. God blesses us in Christ. He works in us through Christ. And so the author reminds us who Christ is and what Christ has done by giving us two truths about Christ, about Jesus. The first one is this. 
that Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. May the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. You know, all through the Bible, God's relationship to us, his people, is described in terms of a shepherd and his sheep. This image is used over and over again. It's an image that conveys a sense of belonging, a sense of care, of personal presence, of nurture. You know, our sister Emily read Ezekiel chapter 34. In that passage, God promises, he says, I, the Lord, myself will be their shepherd. And here we're seeing Jesus being called the great shepherd of the sheep. A very clear indicator that Jesus is God. And, and last week we saw that the Lord graciously provides us with elders to be our shepherds. He provides us with under-shepherds to keep watch over our souls, uh, whom we should obey and submit to. But over those under-shepherds, over the human shepherds, the elders of the church, over them there is one perfect, unchanging, glorious, great shepherd. And he is the one who leads and feeds and cares for all of us as his sheep, the sheep whom he bought with his blood. It's our Lord Jesus Christ. We would have no chance in this world filled with wolves and predators and storms apart from our good shepherd. Our safety, our security, our comfort, our confidence is not in ourselves, not in our circumstances, but on the greatness of our good shepherd. We belong to him. If you want to understand how precious is our shepherd's care and presence with us, you need to think about the dire predicament of sheep without a shepherd. You know, sheep without a shepherd are pretty desperate and pitiful. Anytime you see in the Bible it talk about sheep without a shepherd, that's a bad and dangerous situation. I think in the natural world, sheep without a shepherd are prey to predators. Wolves can tear them apart. Other predators can destroy them. They can't run. They can't fight. Their bleating is not going to scare a wolf. No, they're easy prey. Not only are they prey to predators, they are also prone to wander. Sheep without a shepherd can wander off, get lost, fall off a cliff and die, go off into a region where there is no food and starve to death. They're exposed to the storms and elements. Not only are they prone to wandering, they're also prone to infection. Uh, you know, without a shepherd to regularly shear the sheep and clean the sheep, they get pretty dirty. In fact, uh, their own droppings sometimes will smear their fleece, their overgrown fleece. And then it becomes so filthy that there's this particular parasite that infects sheep called blowflies. 
and blowflies will then go to this dirty fleece and lay their eggs in the sheep's skin. And these maggots quickly multiply, leading to tissue decay, toxic shock, and a painful death. That's how pitiful sheep without a shepherd are. And that's what we were. That's what we were, dear friends. That's what you and I were. That's what you and I are without Christ, unprotected, prey to wild beasts, lost, straying, starving, infected, dying. But our great shepherd came, his heart overflowing with love and compassion for us, and he saved us, he rescued us, he carried us on his shoulders and brought us into his sheepfold. He cleansed us. He feeds us with green pastures of his word. He cares for us. He cares for you. His shepherd's heart overflows with love and compassion for you, dear Christian. He rescued us from Satan. He took on that fierce wolf, that beast, destroyed him. He protects us from fierce wolves in this world, from false teachers by his word. He leads us and guides us. He keeps us from straying. He keeps watch over our souls. He leads us and feeds us. He cleanses us from our filth and the maggots of our guilt and sin that threaten to infect and destroy us. And he assures us. Hear his word of assurance this morning. He says, I am the good shepherd who lays down my life for my sheep, I have bought you with my blood and I have cleansed you and you belong to me forever. Beloved Christian, dear suffering saint, dear wandering sheep, if you are straying this morning, would you hear the voice of your great good shepherd? He is the great shepherd of the sheep. Through him, God works in us everything pleasing in his sight. And not only are we bound to him as sheep to our shepherd, we are also bound to God in Christ by something deeper, by his eternal covenant. That leads to the second truth the author gives us about Christ here. So he's given, let's think about the structure again, he's given us two promises of blessing from God, that we are equipped to do his will, and that he works in us that which is pleasing in his sight, He's given us two truths about God, that he is the God of peace, that he is the God who raised Jesus from the dead. And here he gives us two truths about Christ, that he is the great shepherd of the sheep. And second, that Christ's blood established an eternal covenant with God. Christ's blood has established an eternal covenant. Look again there at verse 20. The God of peace brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of of the eternal covenant, by the blood of the eternal covenant. God brought him again from the dead because of the blood of the eternal covenant. What does that mean? It means that when God raised Jesus, he was showing that Christ's death, his sacrifice, was perfect, was fully accepted by him, and that by Christ's blood, an eternal covenant has been inaugurated. The foundation for our relationship with God, the foundation for the forgiveness of our sins, the foundation for our godly living, the foundation 
for the promises of God that will work in us and equip us is this eternal covenant. You see, biblically, God's relationship to us, God's relationship to human beings in the Bible is always defined as a covenant relationship in terms of covenant. What is a covenant? A covenant is a committed relationship marked by loyal love and built on binding promises. It's a committed relationship marked by loyal love and built on binding promises. And Hebrews tells us the story of two covenants, two covenants that God has made. There are multiple covenants throughout the scripture, but Hebrews specifically focuses on the contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant, which is eternal. The old covenant is the covenant that God made with his people Israel when he brought them out of Egypt under Moses. In this covenant, he gave them his law, his righteous law that revealed his character. Uh, there were promises on both sides and obligations for the people of Israel to keep because of God's grace shown to them. But that, did, that covenant didn't finally bring them into perfection. That covenant, in fact, revealed the problem of their sin, but it didn't solve that problem. The old covenant was like a mirror. It showed them how dirty they are, but with no ability to cleanse them. It showed them the standard of God's righteousness, but with its priesthood of flawed priests, and with its sacrifices of the blood and bulls, of bulls and goats, it could never cleanse them from, from sin. It could never change their hearts within. But now, in Christ, God has established a new covenant. A new covenant that is eternal. Jesus, by his death, has inaugurated this covenant, it tells us in Hebrews chapter 8. And this covenant promises to us full and complete forgiveness of sins. And changed hearts, new hearts with God's law written on our hearts so that we are able to do God's will. And this is a covenant that will not be broken. It will never be broken because Jesus, the Son of God, the perfectly righteous Son of God, is our covenant mediator. It is an eternal covenant that will stretch forward into all eternity. God has entered into an eternal bond with us through Christ. So this means that one million years from now, when you are enjoying God's glory in His eternal kingdom in the heavenly city, when you are beholding His face and shining like the sun, the pardon for sin and the peace that you enjoy at that point is no different than what God already promises to you right now. You stand today in Christ as forgiven and justified and accepted before God Almighty in His covenant with you as you will one million years from now. And until that glorious day, the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of this eternal covenant, has promised to equip us with everything good to do His will and to work in us that which is pleasing in His sight. And what's the result of that? What's the result of His work in us? Well, He tells us, it's glory to Christ forever. Right? He works in us, verse 21, that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. 
God will ensure, dear Christian, that your life will bring glory to Christ forever. But the text doesn't end there with that benediction. No, we get uh, this little greeting, which when we're reading our Bibles, we often kind of skip over and, you know, that's just kind of, okay, that's, that's the end credits. We'll stop there, right? Actually, the greetings there in verses 22 to 25 are very important because they speak of the two ways that God equips us and works in us, right? Verses 22 to 25. Notice verse 22. This guy has preached for about an hour. So if you take the original Hebrews and read it out in the original out loud, it takes about an hour to read, okay? So you've got to imagine this was a sermon. It was preached to the congregation. He then puts it into written form as a letter, sends it to other churches, and the pastors of those churches are standing before the congregation reading it out, right? And it takes about an hour to preach. So um, I'm trying my best to keep my sermon under an hour. He says in verse 22, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. This is his word of exhortation. This is a sermon. And what he's saying is, bear with it. It's not that long. It's only an hour long. It's brief. And it's an exhortation to us. Because you see, one of the ways that God equips us and works in us is through gospel preaching. Preaching is his gift to us. This is how he works in us. And here when the author says, bear with my word of exhortation, what he's saying is, listen faithfully. Put your nose in the Bible. Listen attentively. And as you hear God's word, let it work in you. Take it to heart. Be changed by the preaching of God's word. The author is saying, and I'm saying, bear with what I am saying. Though it may convict you, though it may challenge you, though it may feel a bit painful at times like a surgeon's knife cutting deep, bear with it, receive it. Think of throughout Hebrews, he said things that were immensely comforting. The author has said things that are tremendously theological. He has said things that are intensely convicting, and he's even said a few things that are frightening. But he says, bear with all that, because it's necessary for your growth, for your godliness, for your holiness, for your very life. Brothers and sisters, I've had the privilege of preaching God's word to you for six years. It's my joy to see a congregation that is hungry for the word of God. And I want to exhort you as the author of Hebrews exhorts us, bear with God's word of exhortation, bear with the preaching of God's word, because it is one of the means by which he equips you and works in you that which is pleasing in his sight. But it isn't just gospel preaching by which God equips us. No, it's also through gospel people. It's not just the preaching of God's word, but it's also God's word and the gospel at work in a community of faith with brothers and sisters who together gaze at Christ. Right? Think of the, how, how personal this, this word is at the end there, verses 23 to 25. Like many of the letters in the New Testament, he says, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Gives an update on brother Timothy. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy, 
send you greetings. So he says, the former members of your church who are now with me, they're sending you greetings. And kind of reminds us of life here in Abu Dhabi where people come here from the nations, grow as disciples, go off to the nations to be gospel ambassadors, and every now and then they'll send an email or they'll send a greeting. We have a family of faith that extends beyond Abu Dhabi into all of the inhabited world, people who have journeyed together in Christ here at ECC. See, as we come to the end of Hebrews, we've got to remember, brothers and sisters, this was a real sermon preached to a real church in the real and difficult world in which we also live. They were facing real trials, and from start to finish, the preacher has given them an intense theological study of Christology the study of Christ, who He is and what He's done. In the midst of their trials and tribulations, as they're bogged down, straying, struggling, He lifts their eyes up to behold their real Christ. They were tempted to give up. They were tempted to abandon their faith. And then the author reminds them that knowing who Christ is and what Christ has done is the greatest source of comfort in the Christian life and the greatest source of strength to carry on. Dear brother, dear sister, dear friend, I don't know what you're going through right now in your life. I don't know where you're struggling this morning, but the most important thing that I can remind you of as we close our series on Hebrews is who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And we need to be reminded, we have this Jesus. I want you to think with me of everything, everything that this preacher, this author of Hebrews has told us about Jesus for 20 months now from start to finish. Hebrews 1, that Jesus is God's final word that God has spoken in His Son, His final word. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. He has made purification for sins and He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. Jesus is the great son of God who is greater than the angels. He is the new and better Adam who is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. He is the pioneer of our salvation who leads many sons into glory. He came, took on flesh and blood and defeated the one who has the power of death, the devil, through his own death and rescued us from slavery. He is a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God and has made propitiation for our sins. Jesus is greater than Moses. As a son over God's house and as the builder of God's house, he is worthy of more honor than Moses. He is greater than Joshua because he leads us into God's eternal rest. Jesus is our rest. He is the word of God, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to see the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. He is our great high priest who has passed through the heavens, and he is able to sympathize. 
He is able to sympathize with us, having been tempted in every way, just as we are yet without sin. And as we draw near to him, we find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Jesus is the source of our eternal salvation. He is the anchor for our souls. He is the hope that has entered within the veil. Jesus is better. He is our better high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek always living to, making, to make intercession for us, able to save to the uttermost all who draw near to God through him. Jesus has become the better mediator of a better covenant through which we have full and complete forgiveness of sins, through which we have new hearts that are able to obey God's will. Jesus has entered the true and better sanctuary, heaven itself, into the very presence of God where he will lead us one day. Jesus has offered a better sacrifice, not the blood of bulls and goats that could never take away sin, but he has offered himself once for all as the perfect sacrifice that sanctifies forever those who trust in him. Jesus is better. He is the coming one who will come and will not delay and will bring salvation to all of us who are eagerly longing to see him. Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. He is the son through whom we are adopted as sons into God's family. He is the one who leads us to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the city of the living God. He will bring us there. He is the voice that warns us from heaven. He is the one who has inaugurated the unshakable kingdom that we receive. He is a consuming fire. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He suffered outside the gates to sanctify his people by his blood. And he was brought again from the dead. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. He is the only hope, the only hope for you and me. And all glory and honor and praise belongs to him forever and ever and ever, this is our Christ. We have Christ. Amen.